It's good to be with you this morning. Uh, it's always a, <clears throat> excuse me, it's always a little risky for a pastor to give up his pulpit, okay? Um, and uh, so, Pastor Tim, it's been fun to meet you. Of course, I got to know uh, Kenton uh, a, a few weeks ago. I, I added in the first service, I said, uh, the reason Kenton had a hard time finding Lifeways, he, he ended up in the honky-tonk area. Well, you know, I think he got a little distracted. But, uh, no, our old building used to be right on Broadway, and... Uh, Right, right near all the honky tonks, and uh, uh, by the way, it's it's amazing. I'm talking about Lifeway, uh, which is where I work. Uh, that 14 acres that is now becoming what's called Nashville Yards is is really a big deal. It's going to be a beautiful thing that changes uh, Nashville in an ongoing way. But I tell you what, it was really fun this morning. <clears throat> Typically, I'm I'm commuting, fighting. Nashville's becoming kind of like Atlanta. Uh, the commute's getting worse and worse, and. Uh, and uh, so it, it was fun this morning to actually be driving through the cornfields. Uh, it was beautiful. And uh, I got up really early because um, my son is a pastor in Lebanon, Tennessee. And so we typically are over there on Sundays helping him. But we drove over there last night. My wife wanted to see the three grandsons. So did I. And um, so, and then I got up early and we drove on over here this morning. And it was just gorgeous. And it kind of really took me back. I grew up on a ranch in Wyoming and we had... Um, we raised cattle. We had. Uh, we also did quite a bit of farming, and so it, it just brought back memories. In fact, I got here about 20 or 30 minutes early, so I just started driving around like an old farmer, you know, 15 miles an hour, and, and uh, I, I've become that guy, you know, the guy that gets stuck behind on the, the road, you know. But anyway, it's beautiful to be here, and uh, so thanks for that opportunity. Let me let me just share with you that I realize that on an ongoing basis, your your leadership, your staff, and other key lay leaders. Uh, they're laboring on your behalf uh, before the Lord to do what God tells us to do in his word. And so I hope you appreciate that. And, um, and hopefully what I'll do today is only assist them a little bit. I was uh, joking with Kenton a little bit about, you, you may, you may want to you know, consider giving your pastor just a little bit of a salary raise. He's got, he needs to polish those shoes a little bit there. <laughs> or maybe that's in. Is that in now? Oh, that's it. Okay. Yeah, I'm always waking up to things being in and out, and, and then they come back in. I heard bell bottoms are coming back, you know, is that, who knows? But anyway, it's good to be with you. Let, let me move to the focus of today, and I'm grateful that your staff is uh, emphasizing. I think it's a two-week, well, it's an ongoing emphasis, I know that, but it, it's a two-week special emphasis on a topic that's very important. And it's a, my words would be uh, engaging the laity. That would be, maybe that's a little bit of shop talk. Mobilizing the saints. Uh, getting everybody in the game. Maybe that's a little more uh, common. Get, you know, getting everybody into the game. That, that's kind of this special emphasis. And like I said, I'm sure that's a normal emphasis. I, when I taught leadership at one of our seminaries, I used to say that in all of these key areas of the, of the church, like prayer or children's ministry or any number of things, you have an ongoing week-to-week emphasis. But every, that's the rope, okay? That's like the ongoing emphasis rope. Uh, but every now and then you tie a knot in that rope, and that knot represents we're really going to double down on it for a little bit here. That's kind of what your leaders are doing. Uh, there, it's an ongoing emphasis here to get everybody engaged in the ministry that God has called you and this church to. But we're going to spend, this is, we're on a knot right now for a couple of weeks to really pull out all the stops and really try to encourage the significance of getting everybody engaged. Let me tell you, there's a, 
I've been studying the church for a long time. I served in full-time church work for 22 years, and then I was a seminary professor and academic dean for seven years, and then when I came to Lifeway, I launched Lifeway Research. Now, what's that all about? That isn't me giving you my resume. It's me saying I've been studying the church a long time, and uh, the culture and practices and trends and, and, and whatnot. And let me, let me tell you, we're at a, I think we're at a concerning time because the culture's going farther and farther and farther away from what we would call a biblical worldview, okay? More and more every, every day. And, but the, the church is not rising to the occasion by and large to counter that. In fact, the church is actually becoming more and more compromised as well in different ways. And I could illustrate that if I had lots of time with you. A few years ago, I did a survey of over 2,000 regular churchgoers and they asked what they thought and believed about a lot of different things. And some of the compromises in culture you're seeing in the church as well. And, and, uh, and my, my son <clears throat> went to uh, breakfast with a prominent pastor in the state of Tennessee recently and just to get ideas about ministry and whatnot. And, and this pastor basically said, well, my people are only gonna give me an hour a week. So because of that, we gotta do this, this, and this. And I said, no, that is unacceptable. <laughs> That is contrary to the very nature of the church. And so I'm gonna try to illustrate this morning for you out of God's word, what his standard is for engagement, all right? And uh, we're gonna do that. And, uh, and one of the ways that I'm gonna do that, a couple, a couple of analogies or illustrations that I'll have to kind of help set the, the context, I'm throwing two at you, the army versus the club. And then I'm gonna talk about the Grand Canyon here in just a minute, but let's, let's talk about the army versus the club. A lot of people treat church kind of like a club. It's just part of their life. Um, it's for their benefit. Man, you know, I like to go when it's convenient. And, and I know I'm, I'm preaching the choir here because you're, you're here, all right? So I'm not here beating up on you. You know, I'm grateful you're here this morning, right? But, but some people that kind of, you know, the average frequency of attendance today is like two times a month. And uh, so the trends toward engaging God's people are becoming less encouraging all the time. And, um, and, and so the, this club mentality, it's I, get, I come because I want to get something out of it. Either I enjoy the music or the preaching or it's something for my kids. And, you know, I want my kids to have friends and have activities and whatnot. And there's, there's nothing necessarily wrong with wanting those things. Those are good things, right, that we all benefit from, right? We want those things, but you gotta be careful that you've not become a consumer, a consumer, right? The consumer. See, I believe that one of the biggest uh, battles we face is the battle of truth versus error, and we'll talk about that intermittently. But, but that, the idea that you can be, as a, if, um, here's the assumption, you have made a commitment to Jesus, okay? That's the assumption. And I don't want to just assume that about everybody, but that's, that's my going assumption for the moment. There's nothing about making a commitment to Jesus that equates being a consumer, okay? Um, and, and so th these trends can be concerning. At the time that the church needs to be at its strongest, there's some trends that, that aren't encouraging in that regard. You know, a, a club, you get a specific need met. It's convenient. You can do it when you want to. Uh, it costs you a little bit of time and money, but it's not all that costly. It's fun. Usually there's an affinity focus that you, you know, you get together with people of 
other like mine, you know, whether it's Harley Davidson Motorcycle Club or, you know, I grew up, it was 4-H. Anybody know what 4-H is? Okay, a few people. Okay, um, you know, or maybe it's an athletic program or a soccer club or basketball or whatnot. But a lot of people treat a church like a club. And the analogy I'd rather us talk about today would be the analogy of an army. Not a physical army where we have physical enemies and go after physical nations. Not that at all. But Ephesians 6 makes it clear that we are in a spiritual warfare. It's not Mickey Mouse stuff, folks. We're in a serious, every day, 24-7 battle for the truth. And, and we're, we're losing off. Now, I know God is on his throne. I'm, this isn't me worrying about God. Uh, I know God's not up there wringing his hands. What am I going to do? You know, church attendance has gone from three times a month to twice a month. God, you know, God's not wringing his hands over these trends. But, but we're falling short of what he expects of us. Okay, he's going to get his work done. Wouldn't it be nice if he did it through us too? And so, the, the, you know, I, I just want to be clear about that. But, but an army is different than a club. An army, it takes a serious commitment. It's about others. It's not about you. It's about others. Aren't you grateful today that we have men and women all over this world who are putting themselves in potential harm to defend our freedoms? You know, we take it for granted, don't we? Yet, And so on and on I could go about this idea of an army. It's, it's for others. It's rarely convenient. It can be very, very costly. And so... The, the trends in church life uh, largely have been moving more toward a club trend than they have been toward the army trend. And if I had more time, I've got a massive PowerPoint. Don't worry, Pastor Tim, I'm not going to break into my massive PowerPoint. Um, I didn't even share that with Kenton about some of the trends in church and beliefs and whatnot and practices, but the trends are not going in the right direction. So my challenge to you is, now I'm going to switch my metaphor from an army and a club to the Grand Canyon. Okay, stay with me. Can we, can we use two metaphors like that today? So we're going to go to the Grand Canyon. How many of you have flown over the Grand Canyon and you were smart enough to get an aisle, not an aisle seat, a window seat, and you were able to look out and look at the Grand Canyon? How many of you saw the, have seen the Grand Canyon from 36,000 feet? Okay, a bunch of you. How many of you have actually gone to the Grand Canyon, walked up to its edge? I've seen pictures. There's this thing of glass you can walk out on, right? You can actually walk out. Anybody done that? Now see, I'm, I'm oh, a couple of you over here have done that. See, I, I don't know that I have enough courage to walk out on that glass. And I thought about it. I'll get in an airplane, which is really pretty dangerous. You know, you, you think about it in terms of the, the, but I won't walk out on that. I guess I trust the engineers that built the plane more than I trust the engineers that built the glass. But still, if you're down on the ground, ground you're experiencing more of the Grand Canyon when you're there on the ground than you did from the airplane, right? How many of you floated through the Grand Canyon? Okay, so far we're first service and this service, nobody's done that. Okay, put it on your bucket list. You gotta plan it ahead because you have to kind of get on the list two years ahead of time. It is an amazing six days and six nights on the Grand Canyon, absolutely breathtakingly amazing. I took my, my youngest son when he graduated from Union University in Jackson, Tennessee. As a celebration, I took him down the Grand Canyon. At least that's the story. I really did it for me, but I said it was for him. <laughs> okay. But it was an amazing experience in the Grand Canyon while actually being in the Grand Canyon. It's so much more, so much bigger, so much cooler, so many more diverse elements than you'd ever see flying over... Well, that analogy is the, the analogy of the church today, folks. 
A lot of people who just attend when convenient, that's like flying over at 36,000 feet. Okay, we, we want you in the boat, on the water, in the middle of the Grand Canyon, experiencing all that God has. Now, his strategy is really pretty simple. I, I shared in the, the other service that um, I love doctrine, systematic theology, and all that. I took a bunch of that years ago. I love all of that, thinking about these grand doctrines of the faith that have carried the church forward all these generations. Some, some of the grand doctrines of the faith, man, they're heady. Ooh, make your brain hurt. Just the nature of God and his eternal existence and all the omnis, you know, omnipresent, um, omnipotent, you know, all, and, and the idea of the Trinity, three and one, one and three, and, and Jesus being fully God, fully man, I mean, and time and the whole idea of time and God's purposes and his, the sovereign will of God and the free will. Man, some of these doctrines are so heady. Man, they'll stretch your brain cells. In fact, some, some of you just, you never will fully just figure out, right? Right. And yet we spent, we spent a lot of time uh, wrestling with these grand doctrines of the faith. This one today is not like that. It is straightforward and simple and as clear as a bell. And that is God's strategy to equip his people to do his work. It's extremely clear. We're going to see that today. So let me get on in. I spent too much time in introductory comments here. But let, let's get into the four basic ideas. I, I got to, because I'm a guest speaker, I kind of got to pick what I wanted to do here within reason. I got to pick my four favorite verses on the topic of getting everybody engaged. The first one is Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. You're probably familiar with 8 and 9 because they're very commonly quoted throughout the church over the years. But, uh, and they're very important. But verse 10, we often stop at verse 9. We're going to go all the way through to verse 10 and make our first point. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For you, all of you people, you, those who claim to know Christ, for you are saved by grace through faith, it is not from yourselves, it is God's gift, it is not from works that no one should boast. Very important stuff right there. All the sola fide stuff. I mean, you, know, you didn't earn your salvation, you can't earn your salvation, it is a free gift of God based on Jesus, his substitutionary death on the cross in your place and all, all the stuff I'm sure you hear from this pulpit on a regular basis. It's not of works, it is a gift. But then notice what it goes on to say in verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time that we, for us to do or to walk in them, okay? So this is point number one. If you claim to know Jesus and to be, have an allegiance to him, you have been called by God for the purpose of good works. You're not saved by those works, but you do them because you are saved, okay? And it is, it is evident in this text, God prepared ahead of time for you. Now, I don't, I don't know how finely blueprint God's detailed plan is for every person's life. You know, some people get real extreme about every little detail, you know, the, like the guy that fell down the stairs and got up and shook his pants over and said, glad that's over. You know, like that was full, poor plan. I, I don't know that. But what I can say with great confidence here, God has a purpose for each of you. If you claim to know Jesus, he's got a purpose for you to do something to contribute to the cause of Christ through the church. It's absolutely 100% clear. 
That's point number one. Now, usually that some of those gifts are just so evident you just kind of naturally fall in them. Uh, so this morning, uh, can you introduce me to Wanda Dobbins, right? I don't know whether she just naturally grew into her area of emphasis in this hospice care thing. I don't know if it was just sort of, or, or if she had to really kind of go through a discovery process. I, I don't know. It doesn't really matter. Some, some of you are active. The, the normal rule of thumb is that 20% of, of you do 80% of the work. And that, by the way, that's not acceptable. And only giving the church one or two hours a week, not acceptable. It's not part of God's plan. But some of you, you, you know, maybe it was really easy to find your place, your niche, your purpose, right? Your works, if you will. But for most people, it takes time and practice and trial and error and a little bit of a discovery process. And I know your leaders are working. You're, they already have a discovery process. They're going to continue, I think, to expand on that. It, it may take a discovery process. And if I get time, I'll tell you a little bit of my own story. But point number two is get equipped. Okay, now we're going to go. This is a longer passage. Bear with me. And I'm only really going to hit one main idea out of it, but you'll get, the, you'll get the thrust. Very, very important passage on this topic, Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. And he gave himself, no, and he himself gave some to the church, in other words, to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, like the leaders you have here today, Pastor Tim and others, God's gift to the church, right? That's his plan. To equip you, the saints, for the work of ministry, to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity of faith and the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness, then we will no longer be little children tossed around by waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness in the techniques of deceit. Starting with verse 15 here, but speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, that is Christ, from him the whole body, fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament promotes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Now here's the key phrase. All of that's been very important. By the proper working of each individual part. There's nothing in this text about 20% of you. Okay. Each and every individual part, the proper working of each and every individual part. And so God's strategy is you're called, it's somewhat, it's, it's predetermined at some level, and you're to get equipped. And those leaders that are here are here to help equip you. You're to be equipped. And that means you've got to take advantage of the opportunities that there are to getting equipped. This discovery process of being equipped can happen somewhat on an individual level and then hopefully at a corporate level. So some of the things you can do, many of you have already experienced this, some of the things you can do at an individual level to become engaged in what it is that God's prepared for you is let's just start by reading the Bible. Let's just start there. I'll never, I mean, when I got to college, I, I became a Christian when I was seven. I may tell part of that story if we have time at the end, but, but I ended up, I, I didn't really grow. I didn't have a youth pastor. And anyway, I, I, it's my own fault, but nobody really tried to help me grow as a Christian until I got to college. And, and I started meeting people who were very serious about God and his word. And I went, wow, these people are serious. They, they weren't the 20 percenters. They, I mean, they were the, I mean, they're, they're the go-doer, committed, everybody all in kind of people. And, and I pretty quickly picked up on, and these people take the Bible seriously. 
They actually spend time in it. They get up, they have a thing called a quiet time. And they have little scripture memory packets. I come in and they did Bible studies. And I thought, wow, these people are serious about the scripture. And so, you know, I stumbled my way along my freshman year of college. I thought, well, okay. So I started getting up a little bit early and I started just, I didn't know what to do really. Back then we didn't have resources like Dr. George Guthrie's Read the Bible for Life stuff. Uh, There's some helpful stuff today on how do you read different parts of the Bible and understand it. Back then I just started in Genesis and started reading a chapter two at a time. And I did that pretty faithfully. It was several months. There was really, I didn't notice any real difference, but I'm telling you, month five, month six, month seven, pretty soon that process of getting up early and exposing my mind and heart to God's word really began to take effect. And all of a sudden God's word became alive to me individually. I began to hungry. I, I memorized three verses. Everybody's carrying these little, you know, I grew up where you had skull and Copenhagen in the back pocket. You, you know what that is? Okay, just checking. Um, but these guys had these little scripture memory packets. And I remember I memorized three verses of scripture. I couldn't believe how often those three verses came into my mind and into my, three verses totally changed the way I was thinking and my conversation. Three verses. I thought, wow, God's word really is alive and active. And it began to change how I thought and who I was. See, read your Bible, get in a group. The Christian life is not a solo thing, right? You're to be in community. You're to be getting to, because you need help, right? Don't be arrogant. This idea of I can, I can worship God out by myself on a golf course, or that's, that's a lie. That is not God's plan at all. It is a, it's a group thing. It's a community thing. So you can read your Bible. You can get in a small group. How about this? Learn from a mentor. How many have been mentored at some, how many, let's, let's rephrase this. At a professional level, how many of you have ever been mentored by somebody? Anybody? Okay. Um, how about spiritually? Have you ever been mentored by another believer? A few of you? Okay. It's powerful. I had a guy named Dave Edwards and it wasn't rocket science. He just got with me once a week. I cannot tell you what God did through that effort of a, of a more mature Christian who knew the word better and had had a little more life experience, not a lot more, two or three years is all. He was a little bit older. I cannot tell you the impact that getting with this guy had in my life over a period of time. Over a two-year period of time, he met with me usually once a week. I'm telling you, it was amazing what something like that can do. And you can take advantage of the training that your church offers. But get involved in the discovery process. So point one is you are individually called. Number two, you're to get equipped. Number three, we're going to go to Titus now for our closing emphasis. Two real quick verses, very brief First one is Titus 2.14, and the next one is 3.14. So Titus 2.14 says, and he, Jesus again, gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to cleanse us for himself, a people for his own possession, and then here it comes, eager to do good works. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I tell you, they start young, these Baptists, don't they? Or well, I don't even know whatever, whatever your church is. Uh, eager to do good works, okay? So get eager. Now, that's an attitude, yes, it is an attitude. Sometimes it has emotions. Emotions come and go, we all know that. You, many people 
Praise God, a lot of people get up on Sunday morning and they come and do something meaningful even when they don't feel like. How, how many of you always felt like getting up and taking care of your kids in the morning? Now, come on, be honest. You didn't always feel like doing that, right? Okay, so you don't know, it's not always an emotional thing, but there's a, the, the phrase here means a person who shows ardent enthusiasm for a cause. That's what God wants us to do is to be eager, to be willing, to be available, to do good works. And usually what I've found is that the eagerness comes experientially in the midst of being obedient. It usually is a symptom. I do what I'm supposed to do. And then the eagerness comes as you get involved and you begin to see God use your life. That's where the eagerness, you know, I, I know for me, when I was a sophomore in college, uh, I went to a weekend retreat and this guy drew a timeline on, a, on yep, an old chalkboard, blackboard back then. Okay, they had chalk and blackboard. Some of you don't even know what that is. Um, and he drew a timeline of uh, representing birth to death, okay? And we were all young college students, so average probably 20 years of age or so. And so he started out with our birth and then somewhere in there, there was a cross representing when we came to Christ. For me, it was age seven. And then, and then he drew a timeline to where we were currently, which is age 22. So, you know, 22 years out of however many, right? have already been clocked. And then he, he drew the, the X factor. The rest of our lives from age 20 or so on, he labeled X. And he said, what are you gonna do what are you going to exchange that X amount of your life for? And then he began to methodically explain what are those things that have eternal significance, right? God, your relationship with him, his people, the souls of men and women, and his word. He said, those are the things that if you invest in have an eternal impact. So what are you going to give your life to? Now, let me just be really quick to add here. What I'm about to say could be misunderstood. <clears throat> I, as I drove around this morning, looked at farmhouses, I, I actually, like I said, was pretty nostalgic and, and um, saw some beautiful homes. And I love, I'm, I'm a woodworker, so I love these sheds because I know what's in them. <laughs> you know, I'd love to have a, a shed I could put my tools in. Um, but uh, there, you can be a very God-honoring person that, that spends your whole life farming and ranching and, and any other number of professions. In fact, most people, that's what you, you do. You do a profession like that. But for me, because of God's Ephesians 2.10 in my own life, that was an important moment because I, I, I had to wrestle with, God, do you want me to spend the rest of my life raising cattle? And over a period of time, it became clear, no, as honorable as that might have been, he wanted me to invest more directly in people. And so that was a big decision for me. Uh, walking away from, I would have been the third generation rancher. Uh, my grandfather homesteaded out in, in eastern Wyoming when, when he was young. And so for me, this sense of eternal perspective, what really matters for the long haul, created an eagerness in my heart to use my life in a way that would be meaningful. Number four, lastly, about God's strategy is Titus 3.14. Let our people learn Notice the word learn there. It, for, you know, it takes time, it takes effort, it takes trial and error. It, you have to learn how to do this. It, let our people learn to devote. That's another key word, to devote. 
That word here is to give oneself to something, to be occupied with it, occupied with it. Devote themselves to good works for pressing needs so that they may not be unfruitful. There are a lot of pressing needs, folks, out there that you as a collective community of believers can be part of meeting. This hospice care thing, I, I, um, you know, my, my brother, I, uh, I had a younger brother, his name was Scott. Um, he, had, he had a lot of problems. He went down the alcohol and drug path um, and it was about a 12 year battle. Uh, he ultimately, we, we lost him. Uh, not, not everything always ends out perfect like we'd like, right? In spite of our prayers and best efforts. And, but I cannot tell you how many believers along that 12 year journey helped my family deal with my brother. And I'm so eternally grateful for how many people, no matter where he landed, we could get on the phone and find well-intended Christians who would come alongside of him. He had opportunities. He, he, didn't, he didn't make it. Uh, he died of a heroin overdose when he was 33. But I tell you, the, the saints of God were mobilized trying to help my family help him. And we are forever grateful for that. God's people are everywhere, energized to make a difference. There are pressing needs around this community. Pressing needs. Marriages and finance and employment and emotional problems and people who, who struggle with anxiety and panic attacks. And I could go on and on and on. Many of the things you already know about. Devote themselves to good works for pressing needs so that you will not be unfruitful. It's about you. It's about others too. But it's also so you don't show up at the end of your life being totally unfruitful. What did you do with your life? What, you know, what are you going to have to show for these few decades that we have here on earth? And I'm going to close with a couple, just a story about this doesn't have to be overly complicated. In fact, a lot of our service can be pretty simple and your leaders can help you with that discovery process as we've already said. But I just want to tell you a brief story in closing that helps, I think, make this attainable, right? Okay, and that is in my family history, to my knowledge, uh, my dad did a bunch of uh, genealogy stuff when, he, when he's still alive. Uh, as far as we know, on, on my family, on my mom's side and my dad's side, we don't know of anybody who was a Jesus follower for generations. My mom was the first person on either side of our family tree that I know of that sought out Jesus. Of course, he sought out her and she came to Christ. And, and the person God used was a grouchy old farmer by the name of Art Gens. He had a little old farm. He rented some ground from us. And uh, he, he pestered my family. He pestered my family to go to church. When they'd have old-fashioned revival services, he pestered us to go. When we had vacation Bible school, he pestered us to go. He just pestered us. And you know what? One day my mom went. She was having problems. My dad was an alcoholic at the time. And she began to see her needs. She began to reach out for Jesus. And that, that pesty neighbor took her to church. She went to church there because of his influence. And over time, she came to know Christ. And the, and the transformation of our family tree began. You would not believe the difference. I've got a son right now preaching right as we speak in Lebanon, Tennessee. So my dad, so her great-grandson is standing before God's people on a weekly basis, opening his word. And I could go on and on. The tree began to change because of some one pesty farmer 
who invited my family to go to church. It was an amazing transformation through the simple witness of one guy in rural. I confuse people because we're right on the state line. Part of it was Wyoming, part of it was Nebraska. But the difference. And then my dad continued to struggle for a few more years. But eventually, uh, this faithful pastor, he kept pestering my dad. He'd come out and see him one day. He got my dad off the tractor. It was a Minneapolis Moline propane tractor without a cab. My dad was out doing work in the field, and this pastor came out to see him, drove out in the field. They got down. Dad shut off the tractor. They got in the shade of the tractor, and he came to know Christ. Right there in the field. And a few years later, I did as well. And my dad struggled with alcohol still for a while and some other problems, but eventually he he came to a real commitment to Christ. And he had about 12 years of good ministry before some other illnesses got him. But he had about 12 years where, and you, you know what he did? He was a quiet, introverted kind of a guy. You know what he did? He invited men to join him for coffee at the donut shop. He loved donuts. I love donuts. I come by it honestly. I looked for a donut shop all the way here this morning, never found one. He just quietly, faithfully would invite young men to go do coffee and donuts, and he would witness to them and eventually disciple them. And when my oldest son and I did his funeral in 2008, I'm sitting up here making comments. My son preached most of the sermon. I made some introductory comments. And I'm looking over here at this row of pallbearers. There were eight of them. And I realized... Seven of the eight of those men my dad had led to Christ and discipled individually. This quiet rancher who was introverted faithfully would just get donuts and coffee with people. So these grand, I mean, now some of you will have more significant, more complicated acts of good works and service, but it could be a number of things. Just get in the game. And if you don't know how, you have leaders here who can help you know how. Get in the game. Think of what a church could do. Instead of the old 20-80 rule where 20% of the people are doing 80% of all the good works, just think what would happen if you could have, let's just say 90%. I mean, that's a big number. Or let's just reverse it. What if 80% of the people did 100% of the work? Wow, it would transform Kentucky and beyond. That's my challenge for you. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for Pastor Tim and those who labor with him. And I, we pray that you would do your work through your word to enhance the degree to which this church gets serious about the good works that you've planned for us. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.